They're trying to trick it. On a drive, hit to right field. Sierra going back, looking up, and this game is tied. Roberto Alomar, with his second home run in as many days, has tied the game. And the Toronto bench out of the dugout. Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? What's cracking? Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kagalaki. Half man, half podcast machine. Back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Want to welcome everyone in this week from all my OG Seamheads who have followed me through the years through all my digital and video endeavors. To all these new listeners who keep showing up on the shores of Lake Jake every week, I just want to say thank you. And I am so appreciative of the support and growth for this show as we wind down here in 2022, written, produced, directed, and mixed by yours truly. And it's like I said last week, this show is about the work. I take the work very seriously, but I don't take myself very serious. I ain't here to nickel and dime you in this pathetic-ass economy, as I will never Patreon or crowdsource you. Keep your nickels and dimes, brothers and sisters. I'm not driven by your money. I'm just going to roll up my sleeves, keep it consistent like my main man, Adley Rockstar, and come through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'll tell you what drives me. This game of baseball. That's what drives me. It's been my everything to me. The, the game has been there with me through my highest highs to my lowest depths in life. The truth is, I lived a pretty lonely, loveless childhood. All I had was baseball. And doing these shows is nothing to me. I've been talking to myself about baseball since I was six or seven years old. I was the kid that was always talking to himself. And in my head, well, I was doing this show. The truth is, and we had this check back in 1978 when I was like seven years old. I would have been a millionaire wonder kid by now. 
But look, it is what it is. I've had a great one in life. The game has given me so much, and this is my way of giving it back. That's why I expose myself to the glow of the world to leave something behind for these little boys and girls. One day, this will all be over. Over. Nothing lasts forever. And I've made it my inner mission to leave my voice behind for this sport and her indelible stories. If one kid, 20 years after my death, hears this show and falls in love with baseball, well, I'm going to rest easy, my Seamhead friends. You know, real quick, it's funny. I, I got an old shipmate from the Navy. His name is James, and his son's name is Jake. So, obviously, the kid is a little badass athlete, right? Jake, of course, right? Well, James, he IMs me one night recently, and he says, I got my kid hooked on your show. He loves the stories. He can't stop laughing at your voice. And I'm going to tell you, that struck a chord with me. It has always been goal number one in my mission statement to leave something behind for future generations. And I go in the studio, red light goes on, I give you the skinny. And I'm on a wing and a prayer after that. So going back to taking things seriously, I don't take myself seriously like at all. But I do take the work serious. And I'm driven by paying the game back for future generations. This show, Backwards K-Pod, is available on all platforms, wherever you listen to your pods, or you can visit my website, diamondsnakejake.poppy.com to hear this or any of the other shows in my vault of archives. If you want to make a donation to the show, it's very easy. Look, if you're on Apple or Spotify or any other platform that offers you a chance to rate and review my performance, please do so as you see fit. I ain't scared. Please donate five stars and to our ratings and tell the powers that be that you, you just find me so irresistible. You wish you could wrap me up in a bow and take me home to your wife and kids. So keep your cash, give me the superlatives, and look, we're all juicy, baby. My man, Cecil, down in Central Florida, sitting in the crib, listening to me, waiting for Hurricane Nicole to blow through his town. He sent me a message. It reads, Jake, just listen to the Skydome show. Great show as usual. I'm wondering, though, do you think that more clubs should use retractable domes? Also, the renovation plans look amazing. And spot on with those upgrades, brother. I, I dropped a couple of the plans in the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network Facebook room, and it got a lot of great response and comments. I love that pat patio sky bar that will be where uh, level 500 is currently. And raising those bullies and moving the fans closer to that area, it, it's going to be great. Also, box. Uh, box suits, field level. That intrigues me. These different levels that they have. It's going to look more like a ballpark and not like a multi-purpose cookie cutter. Now, as far as more and more retractable roofs, I believe it comes down to geography most of the time, Cecil. I can remember driving past the stadium formerly known as Joe Robbins, now Hard Rock Cafe, I believe. It's in Miami. So I'm driving past there one July day in the late 90s, and I'm looking in the stadium. I see about 4,000 fans in there, and all I keep thinking is, those people, they must be melting inside that son of a bitch. Now, I love baseball, but I'm not sitting in discomfort for three year, uh, three hours when I can just, you know, as well watch the game at home in the air-conditioning cupboard in my, own, in my home base. 
Now, I feel like the Marlins did the right thing, but the Twins did not. If the Twins ever go to the World Series with postseason now going to almost November, we can see some really crazy things. And for the life of me, I will never understand why the Twins did not go retractable. I also think that a lot of clubs prefer the natural grass and, and having a dome or a roof of any kind. It makes that a little more challenging. And I'll say this, Cecil, I think the days of the original dome stadiums are gone. And all top stadiums from here on out will have a retractable roof of some kind. Now, I could be wrong, but I think that is the way we're going now. So thank you for your question, my friend. Good old Cecil down there in Florida. One of my most loyal of lieutenants in my stables. I love that dude. If you'd like to reach out with me a comment or a question, there are various ways to do so. You can send the show an email at backwardskpod at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at back underscore K underscore podcast. You can leave me a question at my website, diamondsnakejay.poppy.com. Or you can find me on YouTube or Facebook under the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network banner. I mean, look, I'm all tangled up in the web, bro. Come and get some. And anywhere you want to go, I mean, I'm there. Just look, and I'm there. And if you want to leave me a message, go for it, brother. Okay, so it looks like I got all the minutiae out of the way. The catcher is about to come down, and I'm going to call all aboard. As we get this runaway freight train loaded down here on this beautiful island, as this week we will be taking a look at the rich history of baseball in Puerto Rico. Now, as the WBC is on the horizon for March of 2023, BKP is going to be shifting gears a little bit in the second season starting in January. We're going to be pretty much examining... All these countries involved in the tournament, I've already given you baseball in the Dominican Republic, as well as baseball in the Netherlands. Both of these shows are in the archives. You can always go back and check those shows out on whatever your podcast platform is, or you can find it in my archive shows at diamondsnakejake.poppy.com. Next month, we will be doing baseball in Korea, which will give us five of the 16 countries involved before going into 2023. And my goal is, you know, by the time that the tournament is ready to pop off, you're going to be in a position to wow your friends with all kinds of silly information about the game in these different countries. But before I get ahead of myself, let's get after it here in Puerto Rico. And to start this, it's impossible to deny the allure of the million-watt grin of Frankie Lindor. That uh, yeah, in-your-face swagger of El Mago, Javi Baez, or the showstopper, hard-stealing performances of a Carlos Correa in a World Series. And these young men are the constant reminder of how great Puerto Rican ballers are through their remarkable baseball skills, acumen, dynamic personalities, And this cadre of incredibly gifted athletes, among others, they inspire kids every day around the globe to pick up a glove and bat and try to imitate their heroics. For 70 years now, over 300 Puerto Rican players have graced Major League Baseball. Uh, 
And that goes back to since uh, Hiram Bythorn debuted as the first Puerto Rican big leaguer in 1942, a whole seven seasons before Jackie Robinson would break the color barrier. Talent from the island, it took a decidedly upward trend here in the 21st century. Though there have been periods of time on this journey where participation has waxed and waned in its ascent to being a baseball power. And speaking of those over 300 Puerto, uh, Puerto Ricans who have made it to the bigs, only 22 states in the United States have sent more players to the show. And most of those states that have sent more players, you know, states like Texas and California, by themselves, they have a much larger population than Puerto Rico. The first peaks of greatness came in the form of Hall of Famers Roberto Clemente and Orlando Cepeda. And folks, at some point, probably next season, I'll be taking a, you know this in-depth look at the career of Mr. Cepeda. And as far as Roberto, well, all you have to do is dig into my archives and you'll, you'll see the very first show here at BKP was about the life of the, the Pirates' great one. And I implore you, if you haven't heard the Clemente show, you're doing yourself a disservice. Go check it out on whatever your platform is or stop by diamondsnakejake.podbean.com to hear this uplifting but tragic story. And at the conclusion of the Clemente Cepeda era, the success of the players from Puerto Rico had bottomed out in the 80s with an average of 29.4 Puerto Rican players a year. But only producing a yearly average of 14 wins above replacement combined. Uh, the participation, it took a precipitous rise in the 1990s with players like the Alomar brothers and Yvonne Rodriguez entering their prime. From 1995 to 2001, the average war by players from the island increased to 5.5 wins per season from 28.7 to 61.8. And 2001 was a high watermark for Puerto Rico with 50 players making an MLB debut. Puerto Rican players made up just 4% of all players rostered, but they claimed over 12,961 plate appearances or approximately 7% of all the plate appearances in baseball that year. The 2001 season also marked a three-year stretch that saw Puerto Rican players uh, more valuable than ever before, or since, with their players accumulating 61.8, 59.9, and 60.3 wins above replacement in 2001, 2, and 3, respectively. Puerto Rican players such as uh, Carlos Beltran, Carlos Delgado, Jose Hernandez, Javi Lopez, Mike Lowell, Jorge Posada, Javier Vasquez, Jose Vidro, Bernie Williams, they were all well above average during the stretch, each posting individual seasons worth more than four wins. As the golden generation of ballplayers left their prime and big league careers uh, production from Puerto Ricans, it took another nosedive. Although this wasn't as precipitous as the 80s. The gravity of fall was more severe in the early 2000s. Whereas the war 
from Puerto Rican ballers. It fell from 19, 19.1 in 1977 to a low of 3.9 in 1981. The dip in the early part of the 21st century was from 60.3 in 2003 to a minuscule 8.5 in 2014. And the reason for the dip in the 80s is rather opaque. But that recent bottoming out appears to correlate to rule changes made in 1989. And that was the year that MLB altered its draft rules, mandating that players from Puerto Rico are to be selected by the amateur draft rather than scouted and signed as free agents like players from most other Caribbean nations. Former MLB player and current broadcaster Eduardo Perez. He said it took time to learn how to develop a players, and it also took time for MLB and organizational level scouts and coaches to understand how to be patient with players from Puerto Rico. And part of what happened was that all the efforts that MLB had put into Puerto Rico as far as developing and scouting, it began to slow down. The resurgence occurred when former players former Puerto Rican players, they began building baseball academies on the island. And it became clear that MLB was not going to do it. They'd have to take it upon themselves to make sure baseball does not die in Puerto Rico. Here in 2022, there are now several baseball academies in Puerto Rico to help groom future stars for the majors. Not only make them great players, but by molding young boys' minds from their adolescence to Hopefully ushering, you know, like this next gen into the big leagues. These academies, they provide rigorous academics as well as developing baseball skills. And in a way, they foster like this cultural awareness and education for the boys. For example, the Beltran Academy teaches classes in English to prepare these students for their cultural barriers that can overwhelm some youth upon leaving the island. And Lord knows how much talent the game has lost through the years from guys who can play their asses off, but they were ill-prepared for the big lights of American professional sports. Carlos Beltran himself admits that he struggled mightily with his English when he first came up in the Burials organization. There were many times he literally just wanted to quit because he was just so overwhelmed by life in America and being far away from his tiny, small island nation. Beltran has made every concerted effort to give these boys an education on baseball and life. Should they fall short of their baseball goals, which, let's be honest, most of them will, at least they're educated and they're literate, right? And they're able to compete in the cruel real world. It is the kind of education, education, that's easy for me to say, right, which was not available to athletes or their parents, in the immediate years after the MLB draft rule changed. And it is truly, truly helping to en- enhance the prominence of the Puerto Rican ball player to debt. The work of these academies that have put into young players have been, you know, a total reboot and renaissance for Puerto Rican baseball because these families themselves, they don't have the resources to develop baseball talent. So it's an economic strategy as well as a baseball developmental strategy that's taking place here in 2022. And I see this as an opportunity to play baseball 
and be the best that you can possibly be. But it's also an opportunity to open eyes and send more kids to college. It's ridiculously fucking hard to get drafted off the island unless you know somebody and they're giving you this push. Well, with these academies in place now, that push becomes a little bit easier. But if you still don't make it, well, you got a real education to fall back on. So, now that I told you where we are, let me tell you a little bit about how we got here. Baseball, by far, is the most popular sport in Puerto Rico. In terms of spectators and active participants, baseball's king. And the game was introduced to the island by Cuban immigrants in the late 1800s. In 1897, the first two professional baseball clubs on the island were founded. And in 1898, the United States invaded Puerto Rico in the Spanish-American War. Initially, the sport was ridiculed in Puerto Rico as, you know, these hardened tobacco and sugarcane farmers, they called it efete, meaning unmanly, sissy, effeminate. And sidebar, uh, please bear with me with my Spanish. I'm, I don't speak the best Spanish in the world. I speak enough Spanish to survive in a kitchen. If you can understand that. It's funny. I, I got many friends from the Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, who have told me the same thing. That baseball is actually a sport played by women in their countries. It's not looked on as like this masculine sport like soccer. Which in the U.S. it's backwards, right? Dudes suck at soccer here. The women are very competitive in soccer. If not, usually number one ranked in the world. We're just different. I mean, America. We always got to be different, right? So, while the game was being ridiculed, something interesting happened. If you remember back to the Baseball in the Netherlands show that I did, I told you how back in the 1930s, I believe the Dutch were feeling good about themselves, learning baseball, and they challenged some American servicemen over in Amsterdam to a friendly to a friendly game, and the Americans abused them. It was something like 30 to 3. Well, that same thing happens here, only different. <laughs> the Puerto Ricans and the American soldiers occupying the island at this time, they played baseball against one another all the time, and the Puerto Rican teams embarrassed and defeated the more experienced American teams regularly. And because of that, the sport began to catch on. The first two clubs, founded in 1897, were the Almendores, Baseball club owned by Francisco Alomar Armas and the Boricuan Baseball Club owned by Santos Felipe. And according to El País newspaper, the organized professional game played on the island occurred, uh, the first organized professional game played on the island occurred on January 11th, 1898 at the Velodrome in San Terce, San Juan. The Boricans beat the Alamandares by a final of 3 to nothing. The first game to go nine innings was played January 30th, 1898, when Boricuan beat Alamandares again by a final score of 9-3. to Later that year, Puerto Rico became a U.S. territory when it spanked Spain's ass and sent them packing in the Spanish-American War. And like I said, the, the soldiers stationed there would challenge these Puerto Rican pro teams. And on November 4th, 1900, the Alamandores, they trounced Americans of the 2nd Regiment 32-18. to 18. 
Here are just a few of the biggest moments in Puerto Rican baseball history. By the 1920s, team from San Juan and the Puerto Rican Stars, they would travel to New York City to play against American barnstorming pro teams. Uh, in 1928, Emilio Navarro of the Cuban Stars became the first Puerto Rican to play in the Negro Leagues. In 1940, Satchel Page, while pitching for Barujos de Guayama, he walked off a field and straight out of the fucking stadium because he claimed to see a ghost standing next to him on the pitcher's mound. In 1947, Leonis de Holtz and a selection of Puerto Rican All-Stars that beat the mighty Yankees on consecutive days. That's 1947. In 1949, Luis Olmo of the Brooklyn Dodgers, he became the first Puerto Rican to play in a World Series game. He hit a home run in a World Series game, and he collected three hits in a World Series game. In 1951, Puerto Rico wins their first Baseball World Cup. In 1954... Ruben Gomez becomes the first Puerto Rican to not only pitch in a World Series game, but also collect a win in a World Series game. In 1971, the great one, Roberto Clemente, becomes the first Hispanic player to reach 3,000 hits and the first Puerto Rican uh, Hispanic player enshrined in the Baseball Hall of Fame. In 1995, the great Leon Day, an amazing pitcher in the Negro Leagues. He also pitched for the Aguadilla Sharks. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame. His love for the island and his team is reflected by the fact that he is the only Hall of Famer to be enshrined with a cap of a team that does not play on the mainland continent. As his cap depicts him as a shark. And you have to check that out if you ever go there, Leon Day. Or you can go to your Google machine to go see those picks. In 2017, the Puerto Rican national team placed second in the WBC behind only the United States. Now, I told you about the first two teams in Cuba, uh, the first two teams, uh, Cuban owned Alman Daughters and the Puerto Rican Baseball Club. In 1938, the Puerto Rican Professional Baseball League was formed. There were six teams the San Juan Senators, the Mayaguay Indians, the Calgua uh, Creoles, I know I pronounced that wrong, I'm sorry. The Ponce Leones, the Lions, the Oriental Grays, and the Guyama Witch Doctors. In 1939, two more teams were added to the league. The Agadilla Sharks and the San Cersei Congrejos, otherwise known as the Crabbers. Puerto Rican, it does have a winter ball league. It's proudly named Liga de Baseball Profesional Roberto Clemente. It's named after the island's tragic hero, hero, the champion of the league. It represents Puerto Rico in the annual Caribbean World Series, an event I spoke about extensively in the Baseball in the Dominican Republic show. You can find that in the archives or tune in to diamondsnakejake.pobby.com to listen to that show, as well as the very first show of the year, Roberto Clemente. So, there are six teams in the league, and the 2022-23 season started about a week ago, on November 4th. Los Crioles de Caguas, Indios Mayagues, the Crabbers, Leones de Ponce, are still league stalwarts. They're owned by, uh, they're also joined by RA12, a team that's owned by Hall of Fame second baseman Roberto Alomar, as well as the Gigantes of Clemente's hometown of Carolina. There will be 50 games played throughout the season. 
The last regularly scheduled season game is, in, is uh, January 4th. If you want to take a trip after the season-ending game, there will be a four-team semifinals games. That's followed by the series finals between the winners of those semis. And the winner of the Puerto Rican series will then travel to Caracas, Venezuela for the second of uh, February 2023 to the 10th to compete in the Series del Caribe. Now, before I wrap this up, I want to tell you the story about the first Puerto Rican to ever play in the big leagues. And it's the story of Hiram Bythorn. Some of you may know he was the first Puerto Rican to play in the majors. Some of you may know that name from Estadio Hiram Bythorn for all you Hardcore seam heads who have watched the WC jump off in San Juan in the crib that bears his name. But the truth is, most Americans do not know his story. And you should. As his career, it almost parallels Clemente in that he was consistently battling this racist vitriol and stereotypes. And it wasn't until both of these guys are tragic ends to people really understand uh, not only their greatness, but what they had to overcome. So, with the passage of time, the memories of the tropical hurricane, as the kids called him back in the day, Hiram Bythorn, it resides primarily with you know old-time players and fans who have seen him pitch in the 30s and 40s, which, let's be honest, that list of people is getting smaller and smaller every day. And even though the largest stadium on the island bears his name, many residents of his own homeland know little about Hiram Bythorn. And that's what you have me for and Backwards K-Pod here, where I collect ballplayers and their stories. Practically every four years here in the States, we watch games there for the WBC. Santorce Crabbers play there, yet very few people know much about Bythorn. Well, today, I'm going to change that. Six foot one, 200 pounds. Bythorn commanded attention on the bump. With a fastball that topped out about 95 miles per hour, he threw so hard that he would occasionally injure his catcher's hands. But it would take more than, you know, brawn for this strapping lad to make it to the show in the 40s. He was born March 18, 1916 in San Bythorn came from a family of Danish, German, Scottish, and Spanish descent. He had light olive skin, he spoke English fluently, his name did not sound Latino, and he had some of the filthiest fucking pitches around. Now, Hiram attended Central High School in Santorsi. His brothers, Waldemar and Fernando, who were both over a decade his senior, they encouraged him and they insisted in training Hiram to become an athlete. And even though during his childhood, childhood, Hiram lost his big toe on his right foot and some sort of railway accident. It's a little unclear what happened and I couldn't find stories that corroborate each other, but you know, it, it was fact. He, he, he lost his big toe on his right foot and even though he was a digit short on the right foot, it never prevented him from excelling in sports. In 1935, he leads Puerto Rico to a silver medal in volleyball and a bronze in basketball in the Caribbean Games in El Salvador. In 
By this team time, he's already he's got name recognition on the diamond. One game in particular in 1932, he shuts down an all-white baseball team led by the great Johnny Mize as the 16-year-old Bythorn destroyed the team known as Richmond 10-1. to In Bythorn's day, attending games in Puerto Rico or rooting for your home team was both tribal and a social event. The stadium is where people gather to pass the time, catch up with the latest news and gossip, as well as support the young athletes of the island. But it was also a time when Puerto Rico had a suspect self-image. They, they believed that anything of value, it, it must come from outside of the island. And by Thorne's success, it would change that self-perception. Most of the games in San Juan, before they would they would build a house with his name on it, they would play it in Sisto, Sixto Escobar Stadium in El Escambron, El Escambron, where fans who couldn't get in, they would climb trees to watch Bythorn do his thing. It was like, you know, it was only a matter of time before he was going to play in the States. He's, he's blowing everybody away. And the opportunity to head north, it presented itself in 1936 when the Negro League's Newark Dodgers and the Brooklyn Eagles were barnstorming Puerto Rico, playing each other and the Cincinnati Reds. And while watching Bythorn compete against a few Puerto Rican teams, the Eagles were impressed. When their ace Leon Day came down with appendicitis, the Eagles invited Bythorn to join their shorthanded staff in a game against the Reds. On March 1st, 1936, the 20-year-old Bythorn, he pitched in his first game against the Major League Club. And for seven innings, he surrendered only one run versus the Redlegs. But in the eighth, he gave up three runs, and the Eagles went to the bully to seal that victory. And really, that was all the break that Bythorn needed to make that trip to the United States. From there, he is signed by Independent League Class B Norfolk Tars of the Piedmont League. Bythorn would spend the next six years on the farm, moving up mid-season 1937 to the Yankees Class A affiliate in Binghamton. By mid-season 1938, he's continuing to improve. He's advancing to Newark Class AA team, also affiliated with the Yanks. And in his first two minor league seasons, he went 16-9 and 17-9 respectively. And after each season in the States, he would return home to wear the Senators' uniform, and because of his minor league status, uh, the Puerto Rican League of the Baseball Professional, they classified him as Blanquito, or white. It was then changed to Refresa, which means outsider, before finally letting him play as Nativo, or native. When San Juan's manager, Juan Turiella, resigned after just two weeks of the 1938 season, the Senators, they hired Bythorn to be the manager. At 22 years old, Bythorn is still the youngest manager in the history of Puerto Rican winter ball. At the end of the 1941 season, the Chicago Drum Cubs, they drafted Bythorn from the Hollywood Stars, along with Cuban-born Chico Hernandez from the Tulsa Oilers, to form only the third Spanish-speaking battery mate in baseball history at the time. And, side note here, folks. This is eight years before Jackie Robinson. This lends me to believe that if you were black and you were light-skinned enough, say my complexion, and you know you, you 
you might have a chance to get over as a Latin player if you go that way. I do find it amazing that Bythorn is a full eight years before Jackie, yet no one ever talks about it. It's almost like it's, you know, forgotten baseball history. So, Bythorn made his major league debut with the Cubs on April 15, 1942, at Sportsman Park in St. Louis. And Hernandez made his debut the next day in St. Louis as well. Bythorn pitched two innings. He allowed no hits in the debut game, which the Cubs lost 4-2. Often, the two would openly converse and exchange signals aloud if the opposing team had no Spanish-speaking players and coaches. And... In the beginning, Mel Ott, the, the former slugger, by now manager of the New York Giants, he had Cuban-born Dolph Luque sitting on the bench, feeding up uh, Ott the conversation between the battery raids until they finally realized his presence a year later. In 1942, Bythorn's rookie year, he went 9-14 on the god-awful Cubs team, with a 3.69 ERA, 65 strikeouts and 171 in the third innings pitched. In his second year, Bythorn established himself as one of the brightest pitching talents in the National League. He's going 18-12 and 12 with a 2.60 ERA, 30 starts, 86 strikeouts, and 249 and two-thirds innings pitched, 1.17 whip, 128 ERA plus, and he led the National League with seven shutouts, making him the second Latino to lead the league in shutouts. The first, ironically was Dolph Luque, who led the National League in 1921 with three, 1923 with six, and in 1925, he had four. To this day, Hiram Bythorn holds the record for the most shutouts in a season by a Puerto Rican pitcher with those seven in 1943. Bythorn, from all accounts, he had that blazing heater, an outstanding curve, and a sinker he threw from the low three-quarter arm slot, that, you know, batters would just roll over horseshit grounders to the corners all day. He was a hard worker, but also somewhat of a prankster and a teammate remembered as a guy with a playful nature, loved to pull ribs on his teammates. And despite his success as a major leaguer, Hiram always lived under the cloud of rumors and gossip about his racial lineage. Simply by being Latino, there were whispers that implied that, you know, maybe he was a mulatto. Ever since the early 1900s, when the first Latinos were recruited to play organized pro ball in the U.S., the dudes responsible for policing the color line during the Jim Crow era had sought evidence of a player, uh, you know, their whiteness or Castilian bloodline as qualification for admission to an MLB team. The Cubs themselves, they were satisfied with Pythorn's whiteness. In fact, the, the old Cubs press guy, I looked at it, his bio stated that he was of Danish and Spanish heritage. Nonetheless, Hiram endured the, uh, the, the stereotyping and the slurs from the opposing players, managers, fans, wherever he went. On the other hand, his light skin, it meant nothing to fans in San Juan, and it meant everything to the dopes who ran the game in America. And it's the only reason they let him play. As a Puerto Rican, Hiram was a U.S. citizen, which made him eligible for the draft during World War II. After his draft deferments were denied, the War Department reclassified him to 1A. He was uh, inducted. And to the U.S. Navy, he served a two-year stint at the San Juan Naval Air Station in Puerto Rico, where he served as a player manager of the post-baseball team. After his discharge in 1945, Bythorn marries Chicago native 
Virginia Axford in Mexico. And an injury to his hand delays his return to the Cubs in 1946, and he only appears in 26 games, mostly in relief. And clearly, Hiram is no longer the promising pitching prospect like back in the day. He gained 25 pounds by now, and many say his whimsical, lovable spirit, it has soured since being in the military. Uh, Not really sure what happened, but something changed in his attitude, his demeanor. And I guess it kind of bled into his abilities, it sounds like. The Cubs would eventually trade him to Pittsburgh, but he never played for them. He was placed on waivers, selected by the White Sox, but by now, he's played with a sore arm, and he only pitches two games for the Southsiders. His major league career ended with his final game, the first on a doubleheader against the Philadelphia A's on May 4th, 1947 at Comiskey Park. Hiram pitched an inning, he allowed a hit, but he was the winning pitcher in an 8-7 victory over Filthy. Hiram in Virginia, they lived in Chicago uh, when their only child, Hiram Jr., was born in May of 1951. Bythorn's mother and his sister had moved to Mexico City. And plans were made for Hiram to sponsor the baptism of his sister's newborn son. Fearing that this trip would be too much for Virginia and his 7-month-old son, he kissed his wife and he set out to drive the 1,685-mile journey on his own. And little did his wife or son know that would be the last time they would see him alive. Driving a 1947 Buick, he crossed the U.S.-Mexico border and traveled to the town of El Monte along Federal Highway 85. Here, Hiram Bythorn would meet his untimely death when a police officer shot the pitcher in his stomach. Now, folks... I'm going to give you everything I got, but the death is it's sketchy. And the truth will probably never be revealed as to what really fucking happened. Apparently, he stopped at El Monte to get a, a, a hotel room. El Monte, El Monte. Some reporters say that, uh, some reports say that he had no money for the room. And others say that he had $2,000 American, which, you know, that's a big chunk of cash in 1951. That's about $23,000 today in the 2022 economy. So, pretty big fucking discrepancy between $0 and two grand. The policeman, Corporal Ambrosio Castillo Cano, he claimed Bythorn attempted to sell his car to raise money for a hotel room. But he had no license or registration papers for the car, which raises the question, why would Bythorn go to a sister kid's christening without money? And how could Bythorn possibly cross the U.S.-Mexico border without proper paperwork and, you know, um, license and all these things? How could he drive across the country and then, you know, so deep into Mexico without cash? It just doesn't make sense. And according to Corporal Castillo, he got into the car with Hiram. He ordered him to drive to the police station. Which, folks, that don't even sound fucking credible. The cop gets in the car with you and orders you to drive to the police station. Am I the only one not buying this futakta? Along the ride, a fight, a a struggle of some sort, it ensues. And fearing for his life, the officer shot by thought, which... I thought he was driving. You shot a guy who was driving. I mean, this story is fucking crazy. 
Bipoint was transported by ambulance to a hospital 84 miles away in Victoria. Within an hour of the pitcher's arrival, he was pronounced dead of an internal hemorrhage. No one is even sure of the day he died. The story has been so obscured through the years by lies. And the most generally accepted date of his death is December 29th, 1951, at the age of 35 years old. And Bythorn's family, they never believed this crap. They never believed the cop. They are convinced that the cop was trying to steal his car and personal belongings. The more Castillo tried to blame the pitcher, the more convoluted his bullshit story got. He even told the Mexican officials that Bythorn was a self-admitted member of the Communist Party. Strangely, Puerto Rican newspapers, they, they didn't investigate. They didn't send journalists to Mexico to learn the fucking truth. However, the Bythorn family insisted on an FBI investigation, and on January 11, 1952, Castillo was convicted and sentenced to eight years for murder. And the whole true story has really never been revealed. There's so many different, uh, you know, versions of it, and it's really tough to accept it. Outraged by his death and his crude burial in Mexico, the Bythorn family, they demanded that his remains be returned to Puerto Rico. Hiram's decomposing body, still in the clothes he was murdered in, was returned home on January 12, 1952. The next day, about 5,000 people filed by his casket on the field at Sisto, Sixto Escobar Stadium prior to his burial in Isla Verde. The same place where, you know, the second groundbreaking Puerto Rican ball player would die 20 years later. Ten years later, the city of San Juan, they memorialized the island's first major leaguer by naming its new 18,000-seat ballpark, Hiram Bythorn Stadium. A more than fitting tribute to the pioneer who opened the door for all Puerto Rican ballers to realize their dreams. So, before I twist this up around the horn, let's take a look at Hiram Bythorn's MLB stats. Four-year career with the Cubs and the White Sox. He did miss the 1944 and 1945 seasons due to military service in World War II. 4.9 career wins above replacement. The Tropical Hurricane had a 34-31 win-loss record with a 3.16 ERA. He pitched in 105 Major League Baseball games, starting 53 of them. 30 complete games. Eight of those were shutouts. That includes that 1943 season when he led the NL with seven shutouts, which I mentioned before is still the record for Puerto Rican hurlers. He also had five career saves. 509 and two-thirds innings pitched. 185 strikeouts, 2,147 batters faced, 3.27 FIP, 1.35 WHIP, and a 104 ERA plus. And that, my Seamhead friends, is the story of Hiram Bythorn and baseball in Puerto Rico. And America... You know, we're a melting pot, and, and nowhere is it truer than in baseball. More than a quarter of MLB baseball players are of Hispanic heritage, and only the Dominican Republic produces more ball players than the Puerto Ricans. Baseball is deeply rooted in their cultural uh, DNA.
Baseball is not just about the major league. It's it, it, it's a part of being Puerto Rican. It's no different than the rice and beans on their plate every night. The island has been repeatedly rocked by tropical storms the last few years. And they still haven't fully recovered from Hurricane Maria in 2017. The poverty level has spiked on that island, as many families have lost everything in the last five years. And a lot of people have migrated to Florida, and they've joined these uh, diaspora communities, celebrating their Puerto Rican heritage together. The passion for baseball, in many ways is how these displaced people maintain their connection to the homeland. And it is a testament to the way that that Puerto Rican flag pulls on their hearts of the island residents, as well as Puerto Ricans around the world. I want to thank all of you for hanging out in my little sandbox this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed telling you the story of baseball and Puerto Rico. There are a lot of useful tools out there. If you would like to know more about the topic, I mean, first of all, I have the Roberto Clemente story here at Backwards K-Pod. If you haven't heard that, you're missing out. It was the very first fucking show. I put my heart and soul into it. I'm biased, but hey, it's the best goddamn Clemente show I've ever heard on pod. You can check that out on all your pod platforms or go on over to diamondsnakejake.podbean.com to get a piece of that. Also, there's a great book that I endorse wholeheartedly as it was very helpful to me and my research. It's called Puerto Rico's Winter League, a history of Major League Baseball's launching pad. And it's by Thomas E. Van Hyning. H-Y-N-I-N-G. And look, if you really want to know, I recommend this book. I found the hardback, uh, hardback copy for $45. The paperback version is $35. I highly, highly recommend this book. And, you know, like my boy KRS-One used to always say, you must learn. Also, there's some great video on YouTube about baseball in uh, Puerto Rico. And I suggest you learn more about Hiram Byford, a true pioneer and a tragic death. This is a guy all seamheads should know a little backstory on. Hopefully, I motivated you to find out more about him as I really barely scratched the surface on the totality of his life. So, by all means, do your own research and tell me what you think. So, with the history of Puerto Rico in the books, I now change my focus to my next show, which is a bonus show for you guys. I got it coming out this Friday, November 18th, as I will be sitting down with former MLB player Shay Hillenbrand, and we will be discussing his journey to the big leagues, his abrupt, abrupt retirement, and what he's up to now. So, you're going to want to tune in for that Friday, November 18th, Shay Hillenbrand. But look... Hillenbrand, that's an interview for another show here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch with their nose in a phone like a board AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless. And when... The Dead.